Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. Today, Jean Lamb reflects on how she became interested in fitness and eventually joined the industry, her love of movement, and what sports and activities she's involved in now. Jean discusses corrective exercise and shares her insights on programming, motivation, and scope of practice. She goes into injury and rehab before explaining how she keeps up with coaching best practices. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Hi, I'm Jean Lam. Jean Lam is a fitness professional and has been in the field for nearly two decades. Her wide array of certifications has allowed her to work with all ages and abilities from children to senior citizens. Jean has worked with many different areas of fitness and types of movement, most recently as a ski instructor at Liberty Mountain, as well as in the aerial silks and the PK move board. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. Jean, in the introduction, I just skipped over super highlighting all of the various certifications and group physical classes you've taught because you've done so much, it's almost impossible to summarize in a couple sentences. So could you maybe first unpack a little bit some of your background and just what really interests you about movement? So I started probably in my 20s. I was super overweight, couch potato, probably 50, 50 pounds heavier than I am now. So I discovered jazzercise of all things, right? The thong leotard and the lycra. I remember that. Yeah. I didn't do it, but I remember that. <laughs> My friend just posted a, a thing about it for me. So yeah, I started working out and started working out more and more and getting more, getting interested in it. Lost probably that 50 pounds and I've kept it off for about the 30 years, but it's because of the f- working out in a gym. So then when I discovered parkour, I thought, boy, I'm doing pull-ups. I'm doing all these really cool things that are really strong, but let me do something with it. Mm-hmm. So it was really fun to take that and actually be useful, like the whole parkour thing, right? right? Be strong to be useful. So now I was useful. I could do something fun and climb over walls and use my pull-up strength to do things that are, that are different than just doing a pull-up. Mm-hmm. I love that that's exactly the opposite way that a lot of people who get into parkour, they come to parkour for the for the spectacle or for the interest in like being able to move and play. And then they realize, Ooh, I can't do all these things. Then they have to go get physically strong. I love that you have like this, this wicked machinery and you're like, what can I do with this? Oh, parkour. That's not where I think (laughs) most people would go with it. Was there something about parkour that was different from other movements that you tried before? Like I know like you're like a snowboard instructor and a ski instructor and aerial silks, like is parkour your one true passion now that you found it? Or is there something different about it that drew you to it? Well, you know, the funny thing is, so I'm in London, and this is totally a vanity thing. I see this woman who has this unbelievable back and arms at the park, and she's just pulling herself up, jumping on a rail and balancing, coming down, jumping on a rail and balancing. So I was like, are you doing parkour? And she said, yeah. I said, what else do you do? Because your back is amazing. And she said, nope, this is all I do, four, no, time, I do. Four, yeah, four or five days a week, <laughs> and she's having fun. So I showed up, and I, it's, it was so much fun, and I'm not working out, and I'm sweating, and I'm moving, and I'm doing fun things. And this, I was doing aerial silks at the same place. So it was basically working out and never really having to do like a burpee or whatever, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't say the B word. Yeah. Right. So you're saying 30 years ago, you were, I'm going to say on the couch and now you are definitely not on the couch. This, I know it's an audio, so nobody can see, but Jean Uh is not on the couch any longer. (laughs) So how did you change? So what was it? Because I think a lot of people would love to be able to, I don't know that everybody could pull off that kind of transformation, but there's something transformative and fundamentally moving. I don't mean to make the metaphor, but there's something fundamental about that. I'm just wondering what caused you to jump up and move? You know, I have to say this sounds stupid, but jazzercise was really fun. And I did jazzercise and you, you've got your little group and you're going, woo, 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 
ooh, when you're little leotards and stuff like that, and you're dancing. And then I started ice skating. And again, you realize that I can't ice skate. I can't do these activities I want to do if I'm not in shape. Did you used to do those things like ice skating? Is that in college? Just... It was in college. Yeah, it was a college thing. So it was one of those things that unless, you, unless you're strong, you really can't do the things that you... I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. So it kind of built on that. I took a weightlifting class in college, in grad school. And it's just kind of, and I joined a gym and unlimited classes. So yeah, <laughs> and this was the eighties and you're doing high low. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would like to dig into, I think this is maybe not obvious when I say, first say it, but I'd like to dig into adrenaline sports. So I would say going on a limb that you are not a stereotypical adrenaline junkie, but it seems to me that a lot of the things that you're doing are what we would normally think of as adrenaline sports. So parkour is an obvious one, but also I understand that you're a ski instructor, which means you must be really good at skiing. So I'm assuming that you're like, you don't just do simple, you know, snowplow turns on green trails, but so the skiing, downhill skiing and parkour and even aerial silks, how do you look at those sports in terms of like in the context of fear and adrenaline? How do you think about those sports? What are your thoughts on fear? Yeah, I'm not one of those people, like you were saying, I don't love the adrenaline rush. I don't like, I love roller coasters, but I love the f- speed of the roller coaster. That whole adrenaline rush initially, I could do without. Mm-hmm. So the same thing with aerial silks. I wrap myself in the in the silk and I'm up high and I have to let go and do these double drops. And I'm thinking, well, do I want to do that? You know, mm-hmm. but you have to kind of just let yourself go or else you never will, I'll never do it. Right. right? And does that, uh, do you think that that is, um, obviously you think that gives you an advantage Advantage is the wrong word, but that also, that gives you a power, like a power over the activity, a power to push yourself. But do you think that that is something that people do to their detriment? Like if they chase the adrenaline? I think you could, but I was reading about the guy in Free Solo, Alex Honnold. Honnold, Honnold, yeah. yeah. And he talks about how you have to push yourself into fear and that becomes part of your comfort zone if you do that enough. Um, I have no desire to do that level of exactly nothing like that so all of my and all the things i do are, are relatively controlled and i have to say parkour was the first thing i did that was not was outside the gym like you're in a gym you can work out run a marathon you know if the worst comes to worst you stop and you you know you don't you don't want to do it right. right but parkour you try to jump over that vault and you catch your foot and it's like a, you know face plant <laughs> when it happen right. and the same with aerial silk so i did actually fell out of the silks and i dislocated one shoulder doing that. Yeah. And so now it's trying to get over that fear of, no, I know what I'm Once doing. Once bitten, twice shy, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not young. So that's, a, that's another part of it too. Gene, if anybody is familiar with you, it's going to be from being on the PK move board. And I think that your age and your familiarity with physical movement and training, like that's an obvious fit for what makes Nancy's team work together so well. But I'm wondering what do you think when you see people in your same age who who are still on the couch? Like, is it is it like how do you react to that, and do you try to motivate them? Or it really is, you know, because I'm 55, and I have friends who will say that they see what I do on Facebook, and they're like, I'm going to do this because this, you know, something more than that. Jean, you know, like she's doing some fun things. I can do something more than I'm doing, also. Okay. So it's been really fun that people will t- tell me, oh, I did this walking on the wall because I, I was thinking this is what Jean would do, right? Mm. No, WWJD, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, stealing it. What would Gene do? That's good. Oh, that's so egotistical. Sorry. (laughs) Is there anything else that you want to share that you want to talk about related to training or... Yeah. So in my younger days, it was like, let's go as hard as you can, right? How many pull-ups can I do and how many push-ups can I do? And more is better. 
and as I've gotten older, I've realized too, I've become a corrective exercise specialist, that our daily living is really causing a lot of problems with our bodies. And until we fix those, we really can't safely be doing those other activities, especially as we get older. So I want to say at this point, 70% of my workout is probably mobility and, and prehab type things. And then 30% is go, go out all, all hard, you know, as hard right. as you can. But it's all in moderation. But I do feel a lot stronger now than I did 10 years ago. I can do more pull-ups. I can, and they're better form than they, they were. Right. Do you, so I'm always trying to think of ways to like find things that people can take away, like as an actionable. And it's tough because every episode is so different, but this immediately makes me think like, do you keep training logs? How do you program? Cause I mean, if anybody knows how to program, I'm yeah. betting that Gene knows how to program right. for, for training. I'm like, like, do you, do you, do you program your workouts or do you just kind of go with what you feel? So, ironically. So I program for other people and I I do the programming for PK Silver. I help out with it just to make sure it's all safe and that we're doing things that counteract our daily living. Mm -hmm. But I got to the point where I was so overwhelmed with, I had two shoulder surgeries. I was so overwhelmed with trying to rehab myself that I ended up hiring somebody out of Boston. And he works with with circus trainers and he's amazing. So I can just mindlessly pull up my workout and do it and not have to think, well, this is a good exercise. Why don't I do this one instead? Oh, but even this won't be better. And I'll put it on the TRX because, you know, so it's so much easier just turning off my brain and just doing what someone tells me to do. Gene, I know I'm jumping around, but is there an imaginary time machine? Could you have gone back and told yourself something back on the sofa to, to speak figuratively? that you think might have gotten you off the sofa sooner or, or something that would have motivated you? Yeah, I think that failure is part of the equation, right? If you start something, if everything you, um, you do guarantees success, you're not going to ever expand and do more. And also find something that's really fun to do. So back in high school, you have to go to PE and you're doing these whatever things that you absolutely hate. And there's nothing really fun about it. Right. And if you find something fun, this, this is what I tell my clients too, find an activity you enjoy doing and you're not really working out like I said, like the aerialists I know, they're doing pull-ups, they're doing crazy, amazing things, but no, they didn't plan to do it. It was, this is just their fun activity. Mm-hmm. So really find something that you really enjoy. Like, And how do you find that? Because somebody who is listening could take this as a tool that they wanted to use on themselves. But mm-hmm. how do you find that in someone that you're working with? So you, you meet a client and, and you see their physical limitations and mm-hmm. you're, you're starting to think about programming. How do you figure out how to motivate them? Oh, I talk to them about what they really enjoy to, what they enjoy doing, whether they like being outdoors or, and I've actually convinced some of them to come try out this our parkour class. They haven't really taken me up on it, but they love the idea. So when I give them a program to go out the door themselves, it's all very movement-based. So you're not ever just doing pull-ups. You might be doing a catch-fall against the wall, mm-hmm. and then you're going to shuffle to the side and do another catch-fall, and you're going to duck under something. And all of a sudden, they're having fun, and they're enjoying it, and they're laughing, and they're, they're like, oh, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. So it's really about sending people off with something that they want to do and not like this drudgery. There's a book I read. It's by a skier, Murmur Blakesley, um, who's on the national team. She's amazing. But it used to be called In the Yikes Zone. And it's been renamed Conversation with Fear. But basically, we, all, we have this little fear box. And if we don't make the fear box bigger, it gets smaller and smaller. But you also have to be smart about going into your fear. And his, her point was that if you went into the fear too much, then you'd end up in the bar in your scotch zone instead of in your yikes zone. And that would be a really bad thing. So, And then you end up afraid to do anything. So you really have to know. And I do this with PK Silver, too. You push... You can t- have, encourage them to do something that's scary to them, but don't keep them in that fear or else they're never going to come back. Mm. But, it, but it's always exhilarating to say, I did that and I conquered it and I'm okay. And it, it, it was fun. I'm wondering, you have a unique insight into how PK Move has constructed the PK Silver program. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about 
It's one thing for people to say everybody can do parkour and we can just make the movements easier, but I don't think that's actually the case. When you get to, I'm going to say, older adults who haven't been active, I'm guessing that it's way more complicated than just they're physically weak or their tendons are deteriorated. I'm, I'm guessing there's way more to it than that. Right. There's definitely the confidence issue that they haven't done. Again, you don't push out of your comfort zone. It's gotten smaller and smaller. So then they have this fear. I went to this really good class where it was a fitness class where the instructor had someone walk across the room and obviously really easy. And he said, now go back over there, close your eyes. I'm going to put things in your way. Mm-hmm. And so he had the guy do that. And all of a sudden he's like shuffling and he's afraid <laughs> to fall, you know, and he, right. and I think that that's kind of what happens with seniors. They get more and more afraid. So unless you show them that they have the, they can do things that are outside their comfort zone and how to get over curbs and how to get over their steps or whatever they need to do that's in their way that they won't do it and they continue to make it smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. But as we, were, we had said to, the, some, to one group, it, your world gets smaller if you let that happen. So unless you really push yourself out, you, that fear is going to make you do less and it's also going to increase your risk of falling. Because you know with parkour, if you go for that vault and you don't go for it, that's when you get hurt, right? When you pull half, back and think, yeah. Yeah, half measures are worse than right, not. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. So do you, um, can we go a little bit more into that? Like when you were programming for seniors in, in the context of PK Silver, mm-hmm. do you, are you trying to give them, like, I understand the idea, I think I do, of providing them with an environment where they can learn how to deal with their fears and how to expand that box. Right. But are you also trying to empower them to do that fear training on their own? Or is it something like, oh, you can come here, we can do this in this environment and then they can go live their life? Like, or do they have to continue that on their own? I think that they bring it with them. So if you teach them that they can balance on a curb, then they're going to go up steps and things without thinking about it. Whereas if you don't teach them that they can, what they can do, then they don't realize, they just accept that they can't. Because that box gets smaller. It's right. just that this is the no zone and, and they don't go there at all. Right. We've touched on fear and I've bounced around between skiing instruction and parkour. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, are there any parallels or similarities that you're seeing? Like, I think there's a moment when people start up some, start some new activity that they get excited and the joy just like leaks out. And I'm just wondering if there are parallels that you see across all the different sports that you work with. Oh, definitely. And with parkour, it's just more that like you're all of a sudden you're, you're seeing people do things that are hard and you're thinking, I'll never be able to do that. Next thing you know, you're doing it. It's like, oh, I did it. And the same thing with skiing. They see people come down the mountain and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm down at the bottom. There's no way I can do that. But I mean, and for me too, I, I always tell ski instructors they should learn parkour because we teach the beginners basic things on the, on, on the bottom of the hill. And then you get up on the top of the hill and they look down, they're like, oh my gosh, this is so far and it's so scary. And it's almost like my being on, when you're on a rail on, you know, like two feet, three feet off the ground, sure, I can do anything and walk that rail. Same rail, mm-hmm. eight, you know, six feet off the ground. There's a mat there, but at the same time, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. This is scary. So I think it's really good for instructors to try different activities and find out and you relearn what your students are going through. So my son went to Urban Evolution in high school. I, I, I dragged him there. He didn't want to go. But he met two guys there. Omar, do you know Omar Zaki? I think I have met okay. him once, but I don't, okay. I don't think he knows. I don't know who he is. And then Adam. And Tyler and Adam both ended up at UVA, president of the parkour club. And now they're all in LA. Omar is on the stunt person circuit. And Tyler and um, Adam are both doing PhDs in physics out at UCLA. So it's such a small world because the three of them are now roommates there are five people in their, in their apartment, but yeah, it, it's a small, it's a great community. So there's a unique opportunity there if 
if when you find that like your son is doing an activity that you're also doing and which of you started mm-hmm. first so you took him first i took him we did our intro class together oh okay yeah. so i'm wondering like is that i would assume that's particularly fun to be able to share that time with your son like my mom actually my mom took parkour classes too awesome um, yeah. but it's fun to like i mean for my mom she loved it because she'll anything mm-hmm. that she can spend time with me that's awesome for yeah. her for me it was a little weird it's like it's my mom hopes she doesn't fall you know like that kind of thing so i'm just wondering what the dynamic was between you and him in classes you know it was it was, it was so much fun initially, but then he progressed so quickly because he was, you know, 16 and I was in mean, my little classes forever. Yeah. And my daughter and I actually went to, went to the same place and we did aerial silks together. And they did a video way back then when we first started the Lamb family parkour saying that, you know, families that parkour together, yeah. stay together. Right. It, was, it was a fun video. <laughs> but I see the stuff he does now. I'm just like, oh, I can't see this. I can't watch yeah. it. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that everybody who does parkour is training. They're intentionally going out trying to improve themselves. It's pretty rare to find somebody who is literally just screwing around. But I think there's a far, uh, there's a big distance between wanting to improve myself and actually understanding how to do fitness programming and how to actually set real goals, not just, oh, I want to do this, I'm going to go try it, but to actually program and to set goals and to train seasonally and to like have a big picture view. And I'm, I'm wondering what you might be thinking about all the people that you see who might be able to do better than you because of their age, but then you're looking at, well, if you change this, you could go this additional distance further kind of oh definitely because we have daily living dysfunctions right and mm-hmm. that's what we try to program into the pk silver program is that if they can't put their arms directly over your head you don't want them to do things that are overhead until you work on that mobility but i do see people in parkour say trying to do handstands and they can't get their arms over their head safely and then they shouldn't be but you see the big arch you see a lot of problems so yeah i definitely see movement issues that your body can compensate for when you're younger but as you get older that little, that same thing is going to cause rotator cuff tears. It's going to cause just different dysfunctions down the line. And so my next thought is, okay, so well, you were, when she said arms, how many people out there raised their hands when she yeah. said, hold your, I raised both of mine and went, yeah, and I've been working on handstands and I can't hold my arms straight up. So my next thought was, oh, okay, Jean, how do I fix this problem that I have? So if I am a lot of, you know, because the States is so huge, mm-hmm. if I'm in a space where I don't have access to you know, there are a lot of great programs, but mm-hmm. what if I'm by myself? Um, is there a, some hints or some breadcrumbs that you can give people to like, here's how you can find information online or types of people that you should seek out? Well, physical therapists are obviously ideal, but um, if you can't afford to go see one, because, and plus you need a referral depending on the state you live in, there's like, um, there are physical therapists who, I like Barbell Physio because they do, he's a physical therapist. He teaches CrossFit, really good programming. Shift Gymnastics is another one that's also really, really good. Again, physical therapists who are working with specific communities and making sure that they can do the activities safely. Your skill set and the way that you think about movement and the analysis that you bring to it is, is obvious. And I, I, the more I talk to you, the more I'm like, oh, and I understand. I see exactly why Nancy thinks so highly of you and why Rosie talks about you as such a key member of the team. And I'm, I'm thinking there's this idea that I've heard Nancy talk about, which I think is like scope of movement or scope of work. And scope of practice. Scope of practice. Yes, I yes. almost had it. So, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. So those that concept, it seems to me 
to be really, I'm going to say unique. I don't, I mean, I'm not implying that you guys made it up, but it's a very unique part of like the mission and vision. And I'm wondering if you just unpack what you mean by scope of practice and, and why that's so important. Yeah. As some um, personal trainers and some fitness people will go into the physical therapy realm of things where if someone's in pain, they'll try to treat it. And I, what I, what we do is preventative. We'll notice, oh, wait, your head's leaning forward. Why don't we have, do exercises that'll make you, you know, stand up a little bit taller or stretches? But I will never, but if they said, oh, my, my back hurts, my neck hurts, we won't say, oh, try this. Cause we don't know what's causing it. We don't know what the underlying, what's going on. So we might help with just facilitating better movement, mm -hmm. but we won't work through pain. So that's the, when you say scope of practice, you're saying like the, this is what we do. We don't like we certain barriers. And one of them is pain indicators or like, uh, what do you call it? Self-stopping. Like when they decide that they've had enough. Exactly. And that's right. your, that's uh -huh. your way of defining that scope. Right. Do you think that, I mean, I, I think it's obvious. It seems to me obvious that that's really wise when it comes to seniors and, and people who you don't know, like, do they have osteoporosis? They might not even know that they have osteoporosis, exactly. but I'm also uh -huh. thinking that strikes me as a very good thing to to just apply to myself at my four years old and 20 year old like that seems like a valuable skill and i'm, I'm wondering like where did you get that idea is that something that because i don't hear a lot of parkour people talking about that and i'm wondering if you brought that from some other place yeah. that you learned it or it's all it's mostly from the fitness world of you don't cross the you have your scope of practice that's what you do but i also have a, a certification in corrective exercise so that's the everyone has daily dysfunctional daily problem, daily um, dysfunctions. And you want to try to f work on those before you actually have somebody do like heavy lifting. So it's one of my problems of having heavy lifting in a classroom. Cause again, the overhead, if you're doing like a snatch overhead mm -hmm. and your arms can't go overhead, then you're going to arch your back arch to make that back. happen. So your body can make any movement happen. It's just, can it make the movement happen in an efficient manner? You clearly have a lot of experience with working with clients on uh, preventative exercises, but I'm also wondering, you've mentioned that you've had two rotator cuff injuries, and I'm guessing that the journey from sofa to, you know, the current things that you do, that that hasn't been injury free. So I'm wondering if you'd want to share some of the injuries that you've done and how you work through that. And then have you found that you've changed the way you teach having experienced injuries and had to work through them? You know, well, there are acute injuries and then there are chronic injuries, like the acute injuries when you fall and you hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. And then the chronic ones are just overuse or you're doing something inefficiently and you're causing damage. So um, there's only so much you can do about acute injuries, right? We're, we're strong. That's kind of what happened to me. I, so I fell in, fell in ice skating. I um, broke three bones. I had pins and screws put in. This was so long ago that they didn't even have PT back then. It was just like, see, you have a good life. You know? <laughs> Get out. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then three years ago, I get, fell from the um, aerial silks and I dislocated a shoulder. I thought I was fine. I came back to aerials. I was doing parkour. I was doing rock climbing. And a year later, I was doing like an effortless move in, in silks and mm -hmm. it, my shoulder dislocated again. I went to the doctor and he's like, it's like the most screwed up shoulder he's ever seen. <laughs> like I tore two rotator cuff muscles and he said, the fact that I was like, but look what I was doing. I was doing like aerial silks and I was doing these spinny yeah. things and uh, around the arm. And he's like, yeah, like, that's no. I yeah. And so when I came out of surgery, he's like, if most rotator cuff surgery repairs like a two or three out of 10, this was like a 9.8. <laughs> And so Ouch. it was really bad. Yeah. So he was so, I mean, I recovered a year later. It took me like a lot of PT and stuff. And he said he'd cross his fingers before he went into my room every time because he was sure that it was going to break. It wasn't going to, it wasn't going to hold. Yeah. And so two months after that, I went flying off the moguls and skiing and dislocated the other shoulder. And so I had, yeah. So this has been my second, second time, but three years 
of just constant recovery. And it's just not something you want to go through. But again, there are people who have rotator cuff surgeries and it's because they've of overuse or because of chronic something. And so that's something you, if you have any pains worth, it's worth seeing a a PT and getting a a handle on it beforehand. Did you, so before Mm -hmm. your first uh, rotator cuff injury from Mm -hmm. aerials, did you find that before that and then afterwards it affected how you coach so like people have told me, you know, like there are things that happen in their life and like it changed not just themselves, but also changed how they interact with other things. I'm just wondering how it changed your coaching, if it did. No, not really, because it was that was a, it was a acute injury, something that just happened. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of friends say, you're just really not young. Maybe you shouldn't be doing the activities you do. And I'm like, no, you know what? I'm OK. Yeah, like, what's, yeah. I mean, the cycle uh-huh. time on connective tissue is like 500 days. So my, you know, my, yeah. if, you don't have things in between their tendons and ligaments are only 500 days old. So don't want to oh, hear yeah, this. Yeah. I don't want to hear the complaint about it. So everything's old. And then a friend of mine said about her injuries, it's the price of being me. Yes, right? I totally agree with that. I have a couple of scars and they have really good stories that go right, with exactly. them. Like, yeah. Yeah. I love all dogs and I have a scar on my back from where I got bit by a dog and I deserved it. So I always think it's, it's interesting to hear how people assimilate their injuries. I don't just mean like it's part of your body, but like how it becomes part of your persona. There, Sometimes you hurt yourself and then it becomes this, you know, a change in your gait or a change in what you think you can do. Oh, completely. Yeah. And if you don't stay on top of it too, injuries come back to haunt you, right? And that's what happened with my ankle. I've just had so many injuries, so many things happen as a result of that, I think. Gene, one of the challenges I find with a podcast is that people cannot see us. I'm not saying I want to do a video blogging, but they can't actually get an assessment of like how physically fit you are and what you do. And I'm, I'm wondering, so there's a proverbial elephant in the room, which is mm-hmm. women of a certain age of a certain physical fitness level might not be given the credit of like, oh, you're a capable instructor. And Uh, Separate from that, there's also an issue within parkour when we talk about instructors and we talk about the ability to do pick anything and the ability to teach that thing. Those are two completely different skill sets. So I think everybody who's listening is familiar with that idea of like, how do you demonstrate the physical knowledge versus the physical ability? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are of like, do you run into clients who sort of don't want to take your advice, not because you're out of shape, but just because you're a, a slight older woman who, oh, and you have a rotator cuff injury. Well, what could you possibly know? And I'm just wondering, how do you, does that cause you frustration or how do you deal with that? You know, I think once you show them that you can do, unfortunately, you have to show that you can do it. Whereas young guys don't have to show that they can do pull-ups or push-ups. But I think that if, they, if there's ever any doubt and I do it, then, then like I do, I hop up and I'll do a pull-up or whatever, you know, or, <laughs> or a push-up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I'll be like, and two rotator cuff, cuffs yeah, later. later in. But I, I kind of wonder, like, does, that almost seems to imply that the people who are young and physically able and capable, actually, that's a detriment. Like they almost should be forced to demonstrate that they know how to teach like if, if like, so you clearly know how to teach, you clearly know the material, right. but if you're forced to physically perform before you get the street credit, yes. that uh-huh. we almost need to say to the people who are young and physically fit, we need uh-huh. to like force them to perform at the coaching and teaching level. And we don't do that. And that seems to me as like a really unfair situation. Yeah. It's interesting because actually my company is very much of a, we're not hiring young meatheads. Mm. You know, you have to prove that you have knowledge and that you're not going to give this 80 year old woman who's never worked out, like, you know, how to, how to deadlift, you know, her <laughs> weight or anything. Kilos, yeah, right? exactly. 
yeah, yeah. Or snatches or anything like that. They, you have to, so it's actually in my company, kind of the reverse where you you have to prove that you've got the qualifications to be working with people who are older. And people don't realize about working with people who are older or people who aren't are deconditioned. It's not just about taking the same exercise and making it easy. There's so much more involved in it. And it's harder to do that. And some people think it's easier just, oh, just have them do whatever. Less and weight. Or, yes, yeah, exactly. Less yeah. Or, and, yeah. And there's so much more involved and you have to be much more knowledgeable in order to teach people who are, who are deconditioned. So if somebody who was listening and said, Ooh, that's a good point. I want to like learn more about that skill. Is there like, where do people go? Like, is there organizations or books that you'd recommend or like just to start digging into that whole new universe? You know, there are so many classes you'd have to take and it's constant learning. I feel like if you're not on top of everything up to date that you're behind. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing with PK Silver is that we always use up to date research and science-based research in order to, to develop our program. And I, again, you have to find, if I find blogs and physical therapists who I, who I respect, I'm a, I have a NASM corrective exercise specialist. NASM? Yeah, National National Academy of Sports Medicine. And they do a corrective exercise specialist. They were one of the first ones that came out with it. A lot of other organizations have it now, but that kind of gives you a, the basic level, but it's still until you really get into to the world of it. And I have, um, we all have a Golden Hearts senior certification, senior specialist, but I also am constantly taking classes, doing workshops. And of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice. Always have fun. Thank you very much, Jean. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was episode 46. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 46. And there's more to the Movers Mindset project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content, to sign up for our newsletter, or to join the Movers Mindset community. Thanks for listening.